So, um, determining the eight precepts, determining the sila, the ethical standards, and the determining the uh, situation we're in. This is all about our recognizing our relational experience. Last retreat I was on was in France. I'm keep waiting for the translator to translate it. <laughs> it helps give a little more time for you to digest what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. So clearly, uh, you know, most of us live, well, most of you live in ones and twos, and now you're living in 58. <laughs> so the relational sense has suddenly sprung open to be a very wide, relational field, relational experience, all these other people. Now you may not think it's a relation, you come here to relate to everybody. <laughs> In some way it's a very uh, pared down relational experience, but certainly uh, it means you've got to learn to experience each other in a very limited way, um, be seen by each other move around each other, sleep, sharing rooms, eating together. Uh, yeah. This is not a small thing, and of course it's, for most people, it's really rather strange. It's uh, to be quite unsettling, not necessarily unhappy, but it's very different than being living on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to take that kind of sense of large group, which we're going to be in for the next 10 days. Actually, you know, really it's, this is more what it's like, actually. Like if you took the walls of your house down, you'd be realizing you'd be living in a, a large group of thousands of people. And you, you know, and really the, the sense of the large group is, is actually more accurate. Um, you know, in terms of what's really happening, we live in terms of a government government infrastructures, internet, um, you know, decisions being made in Geneva and Brussels and New York and Hong Kong that are affecting us. You know, we're very much existing in this great kind of ocean of human beings. You work for people, you work with people, you work in some corporation, institution, and so forth. You're very much in a large field of other beings. Yeah. Mm. This is actually the much more accurate uh, description of where we are. Mm. I keep challenging this kind of, the paradigm that we tend to operate with is I'm a separate entity. Mm. Um and probably for most people, it's, if they're asked, really pushed to say, where really are you? You probably would experience yourself living somewhere behind your eyes. Somewhere up here. This is, this is the me bit, somewhere in here. Yeah. And there's this other thing underneath it all. Yeah. I don't regard my head on top of me, I regard my feet as underneath me. Yeah. If I had to describe it, my feet are down there. It's not my head's up there. My feet are down there. So clearly, this is basic where I sense I am. Not so very much limited. Not just even inside this body, but only one section of it. The other bits sort of stick 
hang on to it. Yeah. And that's the model, the separated being and slightly trapped or encaged, encased person. And that that's that's the model that we we kind of recognize as these finite physical forms. And probably all of us would say, well, you know, I'm encased by my personal history, psychologies, you know, all those things that make me separate from everybody else. Uh, If you follow that uh, trajectory, that line of experience, the more and more separate, where does it take you to? Self-obsession, loneliness, um, or grandiosity. You know, I'm, I'm the center of the universe. I'm the worst person here. I'm in control of everything. I need to be in control of everything. I'm the person who lives behind my eyes with little buttons and levers in front of me making things happen. That's, you probably don't think like that, but that's the kind of, the, the mood, the, the energies can operate very much in the way that assumptions can operate in that way. Not only is this is really quite painful and unpleasant and it gives rise to all kinds of unwholesome comparisons with others selfishness hostility um, you know loneliness separation from others it's it's a painful experience it's also really rather inaccurate yeah i mean you can't actually you just look at the mental level you can't really find separate your mind from all the language that you've learnt, which has come out of the field of human activity, the psychology, the culture, the things you inherit from your parents, your schooling, your education, your sisters, your brothers, your things that have affected you. There's no line dividing you from all, all that experience. And more like, you could say the nearest thing you can get to it has been like a vortex in a stream. Which it looks sort of separate. It organizes itself in a separate way. But really is you can't draw a line in your mind between what you call me and what you call other people you can, but when you do that, it's how does that line get drawn? You know? What is so me about my mind? Apart from a kind of view and an attitude, a holding, a nervousness, a pride, a fear, an anxiety, is anything actually really skillful, happy, blossoming and releasing about the view that my mind? (laughs) Clearly, well, to me it's very clear it's not, you can't separate it. You didn't create it. You know, all these forces and energies and and generate this experience that you're having. Even the body, which looks so clearly, has strong outlines around it. Hmm? You know, through the eyes, hmm? your eyes can see a strong outline. It's just what this is what the eyes do. But even in the visual sense. You can always see a body sitting within a space, don't you? It's always got something around it. And, you know, and when you experience the body directly, you're always experiencing it touching something. 
Mm. It's with touching the floor. Mm. Feeling affected by the temperature in the room. Mm. Pressure of clothes. And we recognize that the body is always breathing in and breathing out. It's porous. It's uh, it's porous. It's connected. Your sense of it always has to take in something that appears to be other than your body, such as the floor, your clothing, the warmth in the room, and so on. Yeah, simple things like that. Your body cannot be experienced as a separate entity. And yet, we think of it as that. We operate it as if it is. Because it, you know... And when you begin to just uh, question some of that, because this separate, separate sense is so such a fundamental perception and launching pad for our lives. Yeah. And I don't, I think you're going to find most of that, the emotions, the senses that occur with that are not happy, skillful ones. Yeah. And you can look at that yourself. Comparisons, what should I do? What do people think of me? How am I with her? He's disturbing me. Um, What is he? That all kind of stuff. They're not uh, happy, easy experiences. And then say, well, what really does count for you? Being accepted, uh, being in happily settled in your space yeah. being at home where you feel comfortable in your space feeling happy comfortable okay at ease with other people mm. yeah the relationship this is ethics this is ethics and uh, first Essence of the path, generosity, and one of the happiest experiences, giving. Obviously material things, but any way in which one feels one is meeting the needs of another person, in my mind, that is good. Even a dog, it's good. Snail, it's good. <laughs> you know. <laughs> a human being, somehow meeting their needs or Supporting them feels to me good if I can do that. Yeah. Sila, have, holding other people in regard so that I'm concerned for their welfare. I respect them, I don't abuse them. I'm concerned that my speech has not hurt them or offend them or misrepresent them. I feel when that sense is there, I feel most clearly secure and res- and valuing. And, re- and I respect myself. I feel most upright. If I'm swinging loose language at people, that's not, doesn't feel good. 
from manipulating people. It's no, no, no. So, relationship, I'm suggesting, outlining now, is a very crucial experience for us. It's where our sense of well-being can be found, and a lot of our suffering and stress comes from either being in relationships where people have not entered that fully, you know, they're not following either the sealer, either in the letter or the spirit of it. There's miscommunication, there's wrong speech, there's uh, wrong attitudes, there's not seeing, there's, uh, and so on, not valuing each other. A lot of our pain comes from that experience. Mm-hmm. Quite crucial then. And again, what we when we have this sense of this retreat, then just as a kind of, I'm sure it's all been explained, and most of you are very familiar with that, well now, you know, you're really going to uh, um, have to up your game, as it were, <laughs> on a relational level, learning to kind of flow along with 57 other people. That's part of it, but it's much more than behavior. It's about using 57 other people to recognize your defensiveness, your judgment of yourself and others, your comparative mind, your attraction to others, aversion to others, um, not taking others into account, to recognize these pieces where we're off and begin to relax that, to come into harmony. And without even going into all the personality stuff, it's almost a very simple, like a cellular organism, almost like on a subtle physical level, sharing space. There's a training there. A training in relationship, which is not about putting up shop window, you know, being, hey, this is me. <laughs> you know, it's a very kind of, it's not relationship between the person behind your eyes. It's relationship in terms of the whole body, how we are with each other. It's sensing each other, giving each other space, opening the heart. Now, something can very not, beautiful can happen with that, as believe you've done retreats, can experience the challenges with that. Of somebody who snores or puts their shoes in the wrong place or doesn't, you know, yada yada, go on like that. But also, there can be this feeling of dropping some of yourself, some of the boundary senses. Hmm. Now, this is considered as practice as an advantage rather than a difficulty that we have to in, put up with 57 other people. There's an advantage in gaining the kind of trust, self-respect, respect for others. You know, everybody just learning to, you know, give up some of my bit and go with the group. That helps each of us to relax some of that self-definition that can be so poignant, so tender, so awkward, so spiky, and really unsatisfactory. Yeah. 
And of course, the big view of the Dhamma is that individual self-experience is never going to get satisfactory. So, as many have learned the hard way, trying to use meditation as an experience where I can get my feel-goods, where I can cram myself with wisdom and happy, good feelings. Um, no. <laughs> it doesn't really work like that. Now we take that relational sense from ethical and, you know, this appearance we have of being separate beings, kind of what the sense organs tell us, even though on the mind and the heart level we're affecting each other all the time, we're kind of like water sloshing around, merging and bubbling. But the external senses say, oh, well, she's there and I'm here and da, da, da. So even on that level, you know, you're kind of learning to to really operate through the heart rather than the eyes you know, and visual senses. And even perhaps even more profound when we come into uh, more interior experiences of Dhamma than what we call meditation is this relational sense again becomes very important significant because by and large what is sets up what gets set up in the meditation is here am i and there's all these things happening to me these thoughts keep happening to me and these difficult feelings are happening to me and i'd like to have something more pleasant happening to me you know and in that the relationship is really pretty simple like want don't want uh, and by and large, uh, once you begin to uh, cultivate and you're putting down some of the external activities, watching things, reading things, tasting things, chatting, you know, you know all that, is the experience you're having you know, when those elements are taken away. What renunciation does, it takes away these external um, supports and um, forms of feeding and we in ourselves our apparent self and it's not comfortable it's not comfortable mm-hmm. by and large the experience whatever you know flavor it is that you have in retreat any moment is going to be I wish it wasn't like this. I'd like another experience other than the one I'm having now. I'd like it to, you know, quieter, brighter, clearer, richer, fuller, longer, lasting. This one, less of that one. Now this is the besieged self. Separate, seemingly separate from its experiences. And its own own word of relationship that occurs in there is want, don't want. (laughs) 
this is not a very uh, sophisticated or adequate way of relating to experience. So really one of the main things to cultivate in meditation is not want, don't want, but just mindfulness, that famous word. Mindfulness is just spreads over the experience of having, hmm, what's this, is it body? Is it feeling? Hmm, mind state, emotion? What's this one? How, which angle, what's, how is it coming in? Is it feeling, I say, an experience of hostility or strong memory? You know, you can look at it. You can look at this experience in a number of ways. And the Buddha says there are four particular portals, four particular windows you can look at your experience through: body, feeling, uh, mind state. Mind state, roughly, you could say it's emotion. Not quite, but it's pretty near emotion, or particular kind of psycho-spiritual. Um, phenomena such as joyfulness or ill will you could look at that you could any of those you could look at this uh, the mindfulness just uh-huh it's that doesn't really do anything about it apart from name it place it it's neither wanting it nor not wanting it it seems to be and yet it is very clearly relating to it very clearly we can do that. We can do that. And in doing that, the, the friction, the tugging of wanting and not wanting can abate. And marvelously enough, once that tugging of separation abates, strange things start to happen. Good, you know, things start to release. Things start to flow. Things start to shift. Mindfulness doesn't do that, but through unlocking the ways in which we tug, pull, clamp, resist, hold, this rather artificial tug or lock that we create, that gets created in our experience, which is very much, I am this experience, I don't want this experience, I want more of this experience. Instead of that, it's just, this is an experience. It's a very significant shift. Because it doesn't tolerate, it doesn't, isn't based upon the sense of a, of a separate self who's having the experience. This is the experience. There isn't somebody outside of this frame who's having this experience. Yeah. That's the direct experience and of course later on we can say oh i had a great time yesterday but then that's just language isn't it the direct in the direct experience there's the experience there's no body having an experience that's something we can write down or talk about tomorrow or think to ourselves but if i'm thinking i'm having experience the experience is called thinking I'm having an experience. <laughs> and that's an experience, accompanied by interest, curiosity, or whatever. So you just, you, it's a reference frame.
And, you know, it's not just a language thing, because if you are very much, if the mind is very much absorbing into this, since I'm having a good experience, then sooner or later, along will come with it, I want more of this. Is this really it? Or I'm having a bad experience. Oh dear, what's going wrong? What's, well, what am I get, what am I doing wrong? Or didn't get it right? Or why well, this is, whose fault is it? And so on. How can I change it? There'll be the tugging and the pulling and the holding. And this mindfulness, it's not, e- it's not as easy as this word may seem, you know. Because it keeps, the relational experience keeps slipping away into a I-it sense. This happens all the time. It's our normal mode of, of conditioned um, mental, physical activity. I-this. So it takes quite a training and a cultivation to get to that honest, absolute sense. Now, this retreat, as I'm sure, you know, you've got these sheets, the four, on the four, what are called the four foundations, although there isn't really that, that very translation is questioned these days. Uh, it seems to be more likely that it's the four places the Buddha recommends you establish mindfulness. You establish mindfulness with regard to the experience of body, experience of feeling, experience of mind states or heart states, emotion. A very broad reference. And actually, you know, our word emotion is much too small because it also refers to more sublime emotive states such as feeling unconstricted, feeling radiant, feeling sunk, you know, feeling spacious. We could say the the English word feeling, rather than the Pali word feeling really refers to pain and pleasure. The emotive sense. This is the third place. Fourth place is beginning to acknowledge a leading edge of what the mind is generating on out of that state could be joy it could be ill will it could be sleepiness it could be restlessness it could be equanimity you know my general particular themes come out of it and there's a lot there so we'll, we'll go into that bit at a time just go back to again to the relational sense This is um, the kernel of right view, which is uh, you know, expressed in various forms, various ways. One expression of it, there is the result of good and bad deeds. It means we're not, there's no separation from action. You know, I do an action, the action's finished, so what? No, no. I actually am continually formed and informed as a result of, of actions, particularly mental actions. 
the results of my mental actions, my psychological activities, my mental drives and impulses, my mental habits and psychological behaviors, that really is forming me all the time. I'm not separate from them. And what I what I bring to mind now, what I put my mind on now, what I begin to get my mind to operate within now, that's going to form me pretty much in the future. I'm not separate from that. So really, you know, the non-separateness is another way of looking at relationship. Although it's said, you know, the language says I'm heir to my karma, it's actually much closer than that. It's not that I as a separate being am heir to my karma, I am. <laughs> you know, the, the, the inheritance of things that have happened to me, things that I've been involved with. If I look into my mind, there it is. Not just the obvious memories, things I've done, said, but even attitudes, fears, anxieties, uh, concerns, interests, passions. Mm. All that's forming me. There is such a thing as mother and father. A very simple statement, yeah, of course, so what? It means that we really, you know, where do you think this body came from? the genes, the cells, you know? and who formed you. Not just physically, but very primary um, sense of belonging and being. We don't really notice that or know it that clearly because in the very early stages you, you, you don't have any words to do that. But you notice that people, orphans, uh, you know, people who've lost parents, very strongly affected by that. And if you have a strong and effective um, parent relationship, then you're going to come up feeling a lot more confident and assured in the world. This is this is very much uh, borne out through studies on behaviour, people's behaviour. Hmm. You don't get here physically or even mentally on your own. So there is that inheritance. We are the inheritance. We are formed through that. And we will continue to distribute that to everyone we know. Friends, people find difficulties with, people we brush up against, everyone's going to be moved and affected by each other. We're phenomenally relational. You take something like just the human face. I don't know how many muscles are on the human face that have no other purpose than to create signals. Hmm? What do you think your eyebrows are? You know, why do they move around so much? <laughs> you can move your eyebrows. What are they doing? They're signaling, aren't they? Your lips, your smile, your cheeks, your eyes. They're signals. Uh, and any anyone you can see right across the cultures, sign of disapproval 
it's going to be the downturn lips. That's an immediate signal, isn't it? The upturn lips, you're welcome. Downturn lips, just lips. <laughs> but the signaling, we're switched on to that. So it's so fundamental, our interrelatedness. Take it even further, you know, even your, your sense of being body. Now I think for most standard model be, I'm the person in my head moving body round. Probably not much aware of my back at all, just the face, the sense organs, and I'm sort of separate from the rest of it. This this for not, this particular um, standard model causes huge amounts of damage to the physical body, back problems, you know, joints going out, because people are not really in their bodies, not inhabiting all of it. Energetically and consciousness, consciousness is restricted. We haven't learned to really relate to this physicality. <coughs> Big problem, I suggest, um, because, um, you know, losing that, we lose where we are. We're in a virtual world of time and possibilities and potentials and times and appointments and dates and diaries and destinations and opportunities and re regrets and this, you've got no, no firm place to be and uh, not relating to not feeling fully integrated into the body is a major source of of mental imbalance we're speedy we're running out we're not where we are we're confused we're not grounded we're not settling ourselves when that isn't there, our emotion, our emotional patterns easily capture and throw us around. A person who's very grounded and calm in their body got a lot of ballast, a lot of steadiness, a lot of ability to feel impact and not get reactive to it. This is just basic mindfulness training, isn't it? And of all the four foundations, the one that maybe you know, needs the most emphasizing is the body. My suggestion, which we'll look at, is that actually everything can fit within that. Now in relating to the body, not just as a person sitting up in the head with the rest of it operating underneath it, but feeling the senses, the sensations, the energies, the tensions, the nervousness, the relaxation in the body, you're going to begin to uh, find a very helpful way to establish mindfulness, to cover all of that, and begin to release the mind through the body, or the awareness through the body. Hmm. As we'd all recognize, when we're flooded with rage, the body definitely changes as an experience. When we're flooded with sorrow, the body sinks, shoulders sag. When we're flooded with fear, the body changes, it tightens up. When we feel warm and loving, the body changes. 
relaxes and loosens. Sexual arousal, the body changes. Very, these very strong and simple emotional currents are the most obvious ones you can recognize in terms of what happens in your body. The more mindful you want to begin to track a very wide range of emotional effects. And through tracking them, begin to, hey, this is what's happening. Feeling. Oh, yeah, that, we begin to get a clearer perspective on the mind state and also how to release it through going into the body and beginning to release in the body. You don't, then you don't need to analyze why you're thinking this or that. It's a very pure, a very direct, a very simple way of doing it. This is why, you know, the Buddha, when he gave this teaching on the four satipatthana, said this is the direct way to Nibbana. You know, if you want to, it says so, so that you, you know, you see at the end of it, it says you could do this in seven days. Now, let's not get into some kind of race here. Because we got ten, so you can take your time of it. And to be honest, uh, I've never practiced this seven day solid. <laughs> There's always bits when I'm not mindful, where I'm getting to, I am doing this, I am that, you know, the I am thing comes over. That's why if you did hold this mudra, this sati, steadily, if that was there, I think the Buddha generally didn't tell fibs. You know, it's enough for all those, um, almost to rewire, you could say, your attitudes. To change, let them change. to something much more non-dual, non-separate, measureless. So relationship, and uh, you know, forget the I am as uh, as a fundamental unit to keep measuring. Just start to measure or sense the relationship. You know, bored, interested, like it, don't like it, want more of this, want less of that. You just notice that as it's happening. Mm. That that sense, and what would help that relationship to be more uh, supportive. If we can start to gently shift from want, don't want, into something more wise and compassionate, like, oh, difficult experience, now's the time to patience and compassion. Rather than, don't want this, don't want this, don't want this. <laughs> don't want this is totally justifiable and understandable and so on, but, but does it, does it work? <laughs> does it do you any good? What about patience, wisdom and compassion, you know, as, as a relational model? 